Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Tom Hombex. Based in Sydney, Tom is a senior developer at Atlassian, which is the company behind the software issue tracking product Jira, amongst many, many other things. Tom writes regularly about software development on his website at reflectoring.io, and you can also find some of his popular conference talks on YouTube, which we'll link to in the transcript for this podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Hombex, and again, you can check out his work at reflectoring.io. Tom is the author of the LeanPub book, Get Your Hands Dirty on Clean Architecture, a hands-on guide to creating clean web applications with code examples in Java. In the book, using hands-on advice and examples, Tom discusses how you can use hexagonal, the hexagonal architecture style of software development to help keep development costs down throughout the life of an application. In this interview, we're going to talk about Tom's background and career, professional interests, his move to Sydney, which was very recent, uh, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Tom, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first found yourself becoming interested in software. Yeah, I grew up in Germany. So um, you introduced uh, in the introduction, you said I'm, I'm currently based in Sydney. It's just four weeks. I'm just here for four weeks yet. Um, so I grew up in Germany in um, the Ruhrgebiet, which is the um, big metropolitan area in Western Germany. Um, went to school, went to university there, studied computer science. Um, I got in touch with computers uh, in the 80s. My, my dad um, ha- is an electrical engineer, um, so he tinkered around with computers and, and electrical stuff uh, ever since I, I know anything. Um, so uh, he's had a Commodore 64 um, when I was five or six, something around that. So um, I got to play play the games on the Commodore, uh, which which was um, very fun to do. Um, I remember the um, the old uh, tape cassettes. I don't know if you if you know them. You you had this this tape cassette where you had to forward to a certain spot, and then you could play the game that was at this spot on the cassette. Um, yeah, that's. that's gotten a little easier nowadays um yeah then um i I actually my first um my first lines of of source code that i wrote were in basic on the commodore when i was 10 years old um we had a pc back then already i think and i tried to copy a game i was playing on the pc so i started i started to program a i think it was a football manager program but it didn't it didn't get very far um yeah then came the pc age i had a pc starting with a with the 286 uh, almost only for playing no programming until i was 18 uh, when i started to actually um, program in earnest uh, in earnest i think is the word um a couple um, school friends and me um, organized uh, these big computer parties. I don't know what the word is in English. Like, like everybody takes their computer, brings their computer, and their um, we create this big network and play games. I think like they used with, to call them LAN parties. Okay, it's the same word in German then. Okay. Um, LAN parties uh, with with a hundred or two hundred people, so pretty big. And I started actually programming a tournament um, management uh, intranet application where everybody could uh, enter the results of their games and it would automatically automatically pair up um, teams against each other. 
Um, so that was my first real contact with programming. And then it was just a matter of, um, yeah, I didn't even think about it. I just um, uh, enrolled for computer science at university. Yeah, I've got, I've got a, one or two questions to ask you about that. Uh, but before we do that, when I was researching for this interview, I actually came across a sort of funny coincidence. Um, I recently interviewed someone who, uh, an American lean pub author, who when he was in high school spent a year in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really changed his life. Uh, and he wrote a book partly about that. Uh, and I, I see in your LinkedIn profile that you actually, you went from this heavily populated part of Germany to uh, yeah. Illinois uh, for a year in high school. What was, what was that experience like? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it, it was not so populated there, so it was pretty rural. Um, I wasn't used to that, so it was a little boring for me being 16 years old and not not having a driver's license and not getting around so much. Um, but I still think it's a great um, experience. Um, um, I, I think uh, every if you have the opportunity to do this, which I had, um, um, we it was kind of expensive. We had to pay this um, organization, uh, this, this student exchange organization, um, but my family covered it all. And if you have this um, opportunity, I think everyone should take it. If you if you can get it um, out of your country, out of your surroundings, of, out of your environment for a year, um, it only makes you makes you a better person. You just learn so much. Even if it's when I was there, I was pretty bored actually. But in retrospect, it was worth every 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 day of it. Um, so um, yeah, I can uh, suggest everyone who has the opportunity to to do that and this is part of that experience um made me and my family um go to sydney which we just did a couple of weeks ago so that was kind of the origin story to to today i don't know if we if we would have made this decision if i hadn't had the experience of being overseas for a year yeah it's it's as someone who's moved around a fair amount myself i can say one of the one of the interesting kind of paradoxes of of not just traveling but living in more than one place is that you learn about where you come from. You learn to understand where you're from a lot better when you go live somewhere else. And there's also something very unique about being a foreigner. Uh, people relate to you differently uh, yeah. than they do <laughs> than they do to other people. Uh, it's something that I very much enjoy. Uh, but um, uh, and so and so you. Uh, studied computer science in university. And I have actually a very specific question, which if you've listened to a couple of episodes of this podcast, you, you might be anticipating. But um, one thing I like to ask people, if they've studied computer science in university formally, you know, some years ago, if they were starting out their career now, hoping to go on the same trajectory, would they would they study computer science formally and spend all those years and all that money again? Uh, what, what would you answer if I asked you that question? Mm, actually, in, in Germany, we don't or at least didn't have to pay money um, for for college back then so that was not not a concern actually I don't know if I, if I had chosen it um, otherwise um, but um, in retrospect um, yes I think I would do it again but not you, you don't learn software development uh, in, in computer science at least not the software development you actually do in a, in a company as a software developer where you have projects and deadlines and and you i didn't even learn real coding skills so yeah we had some classes on on uh, programming languages but you only learn that by doing it um i still think it's worth at least having a couple of years of university, a bachelor's degree, for, for example, um, just to to get mature 
um, because um, I don't think if I would have started working at a company when I was 21 or something around that, um, I, I think a couple of years later, I was a completely different person, like having um, learned how to get along at university. And I think much of it is learning to learn, getting to know yourself, to um, be able to know how can I learn stuff best is very important, especially in computer uh, in, in software development, because you you have to learn new stuff um, all the time. Um, I don't necessarily think it, that you need a very long study, like a master's degree. I have made, I did a master's degree, but I don't think I would do that again. I would just, with my bachelor's degree, go into a company and start um, working there. Um, what I would suggest anyone um, thinking about um, doing software development is uh, w w um, while studying, start a job, uh, a side job as a software developer, because um, this is the way you actually learn it, um, like two days a week, something like that. I did it, and I'm very glad I did it because um, I, um, yeah, it, it's just a matter of, of, of signing a contract then to get hired. So I stayed in the company where I was a, um, a software developer as a student and um, I've been there for 12 years. So that, that went pretty well. Um, and it's a major um, recruiting channel for, for companies actually, at least where, 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 I, where I come from. Um, so um, a long story short is, yes, I would um, study computer science again, but I wouldn't do the master's degree. Thanks very much for that really great answer. Um, it's interesting that one thing I've noticed asking so many people from so many different backgrounds, you know, who went to university, didn't go to university, this same question over the years. One of the things that seems to sort of decide the balance is if a person relates to their university education, as, as you described it, sort of learning how to learn and this sort of personal development versus people who see university as job training. Um, and so people who are like, you know, well, I, I took all these classes and I never use them in my life now. And it's like, well, you know, that's the kind of person who's often like, I wish I hadn't gone or I wouldn't do it again. But it, 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 is, it is this, you know, very stark dividing line between the way people relate to higher education yeah. and, even, I... and even even, you know, high school. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't um, I, I haven't used much of what I learned at university. So actually, the things I learned at university, yeah, some of them, the basics like um, um, the basics around software development and some we had some psychology, we had some um, media, uh, um, what you call it, media science. Um, it was interesting, but much of it I haven't used since. Um, but that's not the point. The point is getting to know you, yourself better, to learn stuff. And that's what, I'm, what I've been doing since uh, in, in, in my job. Yeah, and undertaking a, a multi-year self-directed project with an uncertain outcome where you're being evaluated along the way all the time in an irreversible way is actually like much harder than most jobs, which is one of the things yeah. I always like to point out to people who like to draw a sort of cynical contrast between university and the real world. It's like, that's actually a lot harder uh, than a lot of things that we do in our professional lives. Um, uh, speaking of which, um, you eventually got into writing and I wanted to ask you how you got into that. So you're, you're, you're a blogger and you're also a conference speaker and, and you've got this book now. Uh, how did you, did, how did you find yourself getting going with writing? Um, I started my first blog, I think some, something around 10 years ago, turned out to be three blog posts and then I never touched it again. So I think many people, uh, writing, um, start like that. 
um, before that, I really didn't like writing much. Um, even in school, I didn't understand why why we would have to write um, essays and stuff like that. I didn't see the, the benefit in learning that. Um, yeah, but after my first blog um, didn't went went so didn't uh, didn't go so well. Um, so I just dumped it, and um, then I restarted it. Um, I think three years ago, actually with. Um, um, it was a project with a couple couple of my colleagues. So we, we came up with the name Reflectoring, which is a mixture of um, reflection and refactoring. I think that that's what the name is supposed to mean. I don't really remember, but I guess it is. It's that. Um, but it turned out that um, I was the only one um, actively writing articles. So it became my blog all the time. Um, and the first year I just kind of um, wrote about random stuff um, um, and uh, not so many people wanted to read that um, and then one and a half years ago I started focusing on um, in-depth technical how-to articles um, around the Java's, Java uh, programming language and the Spring framework um, and that attracted a lot of visitors and of course I'm that, that that's a part part of the motivation. If people read what you're what you're writing, uh, that keeps the motivation up. And I've been motivated since, um, and um, I keep growing my my readership. And um, been trying to regularly post um, uh, blogs, um, uh, yeah, technical how tos. Um, and I, I what I found out is that it's just um, doing it regularly. Uh, in two weeks, one week's in intervals is actually the magic um, to keep it keep it running. So you have to get in a, into a habit of doing it. Um, yeah, and I've, um, I'm still doing it. It was a little hard while writing the book, what we're going to talk about later, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, I, I managed it and I'm very happy that I did. Um, I like writing very much nowadays. I couldn't have thought of it five years ago. I hated writing. And so you worked for the same company for about 12 years, and then you've just recently moved to Sydney. Um, mm -hmm. How did that come about, and how have you found the, uh, the move? I know that you're, you're uh, drenched in smoke right now from bushfires, if the news is correct. Yes, actually, this morning, um, I'm, I'm driving with a bus uh, to work every morning, and um, I drive uh, over the Harbour Bridge in Sydney. Um, with the bus, and when you drive over the Harbour Bridge, you see this this dense smoke in in downtown Sydney, which is kind of scary. Um, yeah, I didn't know about the bushfires before we came here. Perhaps that would would have been a showstopper, but um, well, we're here now. <laughs> um, yeah, I've I've been um, working at um, Adesso in Germany, which is a consultancy for pretty much all my um, professional life before that. Um, I already said that I started there as a student developer and um, got into um, software development, Java programming, um, um, then um, took some more responsibility, did architecture work. So I, I shaped the projects, um, um, worked with the team uh, on the architecture and kind of um, led the development um, with, with a couple um, of, of developers. Um, I did a quick two years detour in project management because um, I thought I, I have to try it um, 
otherwise I can't say if I love it or hate it. Um, I know now that I hate it, so uh, I got back to um, software development and architecture. That's been the work I've been doing the last couple of years in Germany. Um, yeah, and then uh, a recruiter, an Atlassian recruiter, uh, contacted me. Um, um, I, I, in, in Germany, you get um, recruiter messages over LinkedIn or crossing their different platforms every every week. So I didn't I didn't respond actually. I, I didn't even thought, I didn't even think about it because it was a for a position position in Sydney after all. I'm never going to Sydney. That's the other the other end of the world. Um, so I didn't even reply to him. Um, but he kept he kept uh, nagging me for two or three times, and then I said, ah, "Okay, it's uh, Atlassian. It's pretty cool. I, I know I knew Atlassian pretty much my whole um, uh, career because we were using their tools." Um, and so um, yeah, I got in contact with him, did a um, um, video conference, and um, um, yeah, he set up these uh, interviews, and then I had the actual interviews with. Um, um, uh, coding interviews and, and um, culture interviews, three, three interviews in total. Um, and after the first or second interview, I thought, well, they, it's kind of fun. They, well, I, I like what they were telling and they, uh, I, I thought they liked me pretty well too. So I talked to my wife. My wife obviously knew that I was talking to them. I couldn't keep that secret from her. Um, but uh, yeah, then we decided in about a week's time, if I get an offer, we would do it. And the main reasoning behind that is um, we wouldn't, we we didn't want to ask ourselves in five years' time what would have been if we had taken that offer and gone to Australia. That that's the main motivation behind it. Um, and it's basically basically risk free because um, Atlassian uh, covers all the relocation relocation costs, and it's been pretty smooth. Um, it was a pretty smooth relocation actually. Um, and I can come back. We, we can come back if it doesn't work out anytime. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm pretty happy with the decision right now. My wife would probably say otherwise currently because she she has the um, harder job. I'm I'm already in a routine every day, and she's. At home with the kids, getting them into school, uh, and that's probably the harder job. Crumble. Thanks for thanks for sharing that story. Um, I've got just w one or two sort of funny questions about that. One is, uh, I know you've been tweeting about it, but what's the biggest change that you found in sort of your day to day life moving to moving to Sydney? Um, biggest change is probably the the work culture here, um, uh, because um, first of all, it's only thirty eight hours a week, which is kind of standard in Australia, if I get it right. Um, in Germany, it's always 40 hours and plus, so um, it's pretty relaxed here. Uh, everyone is um, doing sports or some other activity uh, at lunchtime. So um, I even um, I'm even going uh, uh, running with, with with a colleague here um, every now and then, uh, which I would have never thought possible at my job in Germany. Um, so yeah, it's very relaxed. I'm, I'm still trying to cope with that. Um, and especially only working 38 hours a week. That's kind of, um, yeah, the thing I'm, I have to get used to most. 
my my next question is just kind of personal, but um, I spent a few weeks doing job training in Sydney once, and um, I personally really like snakes and really hate spiders. And I remember talking to some Australian friends of mine before going, and you know, asking about you know, is there anything I need to worry about? And they're like, I won't do the accent, but the answer was typically no, unless you see a funnel web spider. And I was like, what do they look like? And they go, oh, don't worry, you'll know. <laughs> You'll know when you see one, which to someone who doesn't like spiders is kind of the worst answer. Uh, was that was that the kind? Of, was that? I mean, I know it's kind of random, but was that was the animal life that sort of? Yeah, we we haven't encountered any spiders other than the normal ones we would have in Germany too yet. But um, yeah, that was a, actually a lot of discussion before we moved here because um, there are these videos on YouTube about these giant um, huntsman spiders, which are. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I'm not I, going to. I, I know what you're talking about. I remember talking to another Australian friend of mine, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you just t put them in a jar and put take them outside when you find one behind the painting." Yeah, actually, on your wall. they, I'm they like, don't. I would be terrified. Yeah, they they don't use a jar because it's too small. So you have to use a bowl or something to to capture them. But we haven't encountered one yet. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what will happen if we do. They, we, I asked pretty much everyone here. Do you have, have you seen a um, huntsman spider or a funnel web spider? And I say, yeah, well, yeah, you, you'll have a, a huntsman a spider sometime in your house and you just, you just take it out, like, like you said. Um, and the funnel web spiders, uh, actually, you, you don't see them because they, they burrow into, into holes and um, only if you are actively looking for them, you will, you will find them. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's what I'm told. I haven't seen, seen one yet. Yeah, but we're still we have yet to see um, kangaroos and koalas in in the wildlife, so we're looking forward to that. Um, yeah, that's the bright side of it. So yeah, yeah. Oh, there's many wonderful no problems with, with snakes or spiders. Yeah, many wonderful happy animals in Australia, as well as the sort of like scary comic book ones as well. Um, so uh, moving on to uh, your book. Um, so uh, and and getting a little bit technical. Um, I've interviewed a couple of people who've written books about software architecture before, but I've actually never really asked a question. So w what is software architecture? So imagine you were explaining it to someone who who's never heard of it, and they know programmers write code that makes programs run. But what is software architecture? Um, I think I would explain it um, like, like this software architecture is the giving structure to the code you're coding. So your programmer writes code, and um, this can be good code, it can, can be bad code, um, and um, the structure of the code can be good or bad as well. So if you just write random write code and put it all into one one source code file. Um, this is not going to be very uh, easy to read and easy to understand. So part of software architecture is um, structuring your code into components um, and um, taking care of the dependencies between the components. So one components, component uses another and this one uses another again. Um, so this is software architecture in, in a general sense, but then you also have, and, and this is what my book is actually about, so the, the software part, the coding structure part of things. Um, other definitions of software architecture include the more, um, yeah, include system architect systems, so one system um, calls another system and uh, um, works with the dependencies between the systems. This is like on a, on a larger scale. But my book actually 
um, has this um, approach of, of structuring your code into cohesive modules. And that's, yeah, that's what the book is about. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of questions about that, um, including what hexagonal architecture is, is about. But um, before we do that, can you talk a little bit about layers? Uh, what, ah, what, 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 are, what are layers and what's your problem with them? Yeah, okay. Um, so this is actually one very common architecture you find in, in most of the projects, uh, software projects you'll, you'll find, is um, layering your code. So you have several layers of code, one layer calls the next. So for example, if you have a web application, you will have one layer um, of, of code files that um, um, interface with the browser. So they, they take the calls from the browser, they transform it into, um, into objects um, and pass it on into a so-called business layer. And the business layer is where the actual code um, that, that runs your businesses, all your business rules like pricing or whatever you will, you, you will have in, in your particular web application. So this is the business layer, which, which contains the, um, the business code, the rules of your business. And then there usually is a so-called persistence layer, which um, takes, uh, which, which allows the business code to interface with the database, um, to store data, to retrieve data. Um, and um, yeah, it's very common to have these, these three layers separated because they each have um, their own responsibilities. The web layer interfaces with the browser, with other systems. The um, business layer does the actual um, business logic and the persistence layer interfaces with, with the database, tra translates it into database and into um, SQL, S SQL, um, and back. Um, and this, this is what you, what you typically find in, um, in web applications. Um, I've done it like this for about 10 years, um, and I got a little frustrated with it because um, the, the layers always tended to, to erode pretty quickly. So especially the, the business code and the business layer always tended to be intertwined with the persistence code that actually um, um, calls the database. So you couldn't really do, sometimes you have a requirement where you change a certain aspect of your business rules, but then you would also have to um, uh, um, fight with the persistence around that. And instead, um, I would like to have a very clear responsibility of the business layer only um, for your business rules. So I would like to be able to change this business uh, rule in the, in the business layer um, without having to think about database issues, stuff like that. And this wasn't possible. Um, so this is when I um, read um, Robert Martin's book, Clean Architecture, which uh, describes on a very high level, a um, approach how to um, um, how to avoid this, and um, the approach is to put your business code into the middle of things, um, and uh, not have dependencies to, for example, your database. But you do it the other way around. So your database, your persistence layer, has a dependency to your business layer, um, and not the other way around. This makes your domain, your business code, the center of things, you can change anything in your domain code you wish without having to think about the database. 
Um, this is not possible in all in all circumstances in, in all applications, but in, for for the normal web application, it is possible. Um, but the book uh, Clean Architecture is actually very high level, so um, I was still frustrated with it. I didn't um, know uh, how to actually work code into an architecture like this. Like this, so I researched further and came along um, and, and stumbled upon hexagonal architecture, which is a concept um, by uh, uh, Alistair Cockburn. Um, I think he it's, it's also 10 years or, or, or even older than that, uh, which is a little more concrete. Um, but I still wasn't uh, um, satisfied with it, so I decided to um, try it out myself and play around with, with code a little, um, created an example application, and I thought, okay, this is worth writing about. So I started to write the book um, about a year ago, I think. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. Um, the uh, one of the um, things you're talking about is the difference between, let's say, the idea of like layers, where it's like you can imagine sheets of paper one on top of each other, uh, as opposed to like an onion. Uh, mm -hmm. where there's, you know, something at the center of things and then things are outside of that. So one of the things that you've you've written about and you were just talking about um, was the concept of dependencies. And this is this is a really important concept, particularly if you're I mean, it's an important concept for all software, but particularly if you've been working with third party clients and things like that in consulting roles where all of a sudden a requirement changes on you and you're like, if you haven't done your if you haven't structured your dependencies properly, something over here can break something over there when it shouldn't. And this is a lot of what doing software architecture is about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, software architecture is basically managing dependencies that they are going into the right direction and um, that you don't have too many, too many of them. Um, and yeah, that's exactly what, what this, this architecture approach um, I'm describing is, is about. It's, it's not new by any means. Um, the, the um, clean architecture and hexagonal architecture have been around for for ten years or so, um, but yeah, it's exactly that. You you don't want your um, external dependencies like the database or the web um, to have influence on your business code because the business code is what runs your business and what makes you money, hopefully. Um, and you don't want uh, to. Um, if, if, if the database needs some upgrade, you don't want to have to upgrade your, your business rules because some database changes. You don't want that. So, um, yeah, managing dependencies is, is the best way. The, the magic keyword is um, dependency inversion principle, which is one of the solid principles, um, which I think also come from Robert Martin, um, also 10, 10 years or so back. Um, so you invert your dependencies you, you don't let your business code depend on your persistence or database code, but you, you inverse it so it's the other way around. It's it's really interesting. You actually just reminded me of an old memory. Um, I had a job in London in 1999 with a relatively new company that's involved developing some software to report on mergers and acquisitions around the world. And it was very new. And at one point, well, relatively frequently, the software that we were using to develop this database would break down uh and then you know the world is sitting there twiddling our thumbs and the managers are like you know this is all just money going down the drain so it was it wasn't as bad as like an automotive plant going down but it was pretty bad when that would happen and one time after this had been going on for a couple of hours one of the lead developers came over to me and you know with this very sort of like you know 
portentous look on his face and he said you know the thing is that you know the boss has been complaining about who broke the software for the last couple of hours and he's really angry and I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that the person that he's angry at is you and I didn't know a thing about programming but I knew things I knew logic and I said I just exploded and said what the f are you talking about if if I clicked a button in a user interface and that broke the software that's not that's not my fault and i think you should go back and to explain to the boss you know what the real problem is here uh, mm. and it sounds i mean things you know are a lot more sophisticated in the software world you know since 20 years ago but uh like you know I'm, I'm just using this as a real world example of how if you don't manage dependencies properly when you're building software it has real impact on people it's not just sort of buggy code or something like that um, yeah and also if you if you don't know your dependencies you don't know who to blame for some some error right so if you uh, if you have your dependencies and know them you can tell the guy who, who inserted the error um to to fix it so that's yeah. one one actually one effect of managing dependencies as well <laughs> and, and um and what is hexagonal architecture um, yeah, it's pretty much the same as as the, the clean architecture approach I, I talked about earlier. It's just a different word for it, and um, um, but it's pretty yeah, and it's a different different shape. You you talked about the onion uh, earlier, which is um, kind of a thing Robert Martin uses uses to 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 uh, he. he um, explains his clean architecture in circles. So you have your business code in the middle and then you have layers surrounding this um, with, the, with the dependencies always pointing inward. Um, and uh, Alistair Cockburn um, used another a different um, geometric shape, obviously. He used the hexagon, um, which I, I don't think there is a real good reason why he did that other than I think he he said uh, he, he wrote in a blog post that uh, it, uh, he used the hexagon to show that software a software component can have more than four sides, um, but he could have used any any other shape. So it's just that the hexagon is in the center of things. This is your your um, core application, your your business rules, whatever you call it, and then on the outside um, of this hexagon you have adapters that talk to your application or that your application talks talks to um, but it's it also it, it's also makes use of, of the dependency inversion principle and it's pretty much the same as um, Robert Martin explained in his clean architecture book and if there were one thing you hope that every reader of your book would take away from a reading of it what would that what would that thing be I know it's well, that thing is distill down when it's a whole book yeah but about. I think the one thing is um, that you don't have to do everything with the same architecture style. So what I've done the past couple of years uh, when I've done architecture work uh, is I created layers. And I didn't do it because um, I actually thought about it. I did it because everyone did it like this. So um, this is pretty much the... the the thing that readers should should take take with them that there are other options and there are other options beside hexagonal or clean architecture as well so this is not the solution for every application out there but just having options is, is a very is, is, is a very good thing um, because uh, otherwise you you might get stuck with your big ball of mud moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience as an as an author um, can you 
talk a little bit about why you chose LeanPub as the platform to write this book. Um, I don't really remember when I stumbled upon LeanPub. Um, I think it was because I've seen some some other people of, um, from the software development um, community in Germany published there, but I don't remember who it was. Um, I, I didn't want to, I didn't have a real idea what the book would be, well, I knew what the book would be about, but um, I didn't have it all uh, structured yet. I didn't have a complete um, um, idea of the, of the contents of each chapter and, and uh, things like that. So I didn't want to um, approach a real publisher because I knew that if I did that, I would have to pitch it and I would have to um, do some work up front and really sell the idea. And I didn't want to have any deadlines. So this is when I um, came came across LeanPub and just started writing. Um, and I don't think at first that I did have the goal of actually finishing and publishing it. This only came after I, I created one, two, three chapters. Um, and then I picked up. So at first it was very slow going, uh, one chapter every month or so. Uh, then um, sooner or later I finished uh, two chapters a month. Um, so I, I increased the pace somewhat. Um, I published it on LeanPub about halfway through. This is one of the things I liked um, to uh, create an audience, to, to publish it even before it's ready. Um, and I got some feedback through that um, and improved the book. And then sometime um, this fall, well, fall in Europe, not in, in Australia, fall in Europe, um, uh, I, I published it, I finished it, and yeah, it's a very rewarding experience. I'm seeing that, that people actually spend money on, on what, what you've been writing. That's, that's pretty cool. And I, I'm still getting feedback um, through email. And um, yeah, it's very easy to, to include the feedback into the book and then publish a new version of it. That's, that's one of the things I like, like very much. Um, the book's been published at Pact, uh, at the, at the Pact um, Publishing um, for a month, month now. So they approached me and asked them if they could license the book for me, uh, which I did. But um, I told them that I still wanted to have it on LeanPub. So they um, usually it's an exclusive deal, but they excluded LeanPub from from that. So I'm I'm pretty happy how it worked out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. That's uh, really great, actually. Um, a, a lot of people sort of think that um, at LeanPub we're disappointed if a LeanPub books get, get gets picked up by a publisher, but actually to us that's a great that's a great success story. Although I do want to say thank you for in, <laughs> negotiating to keep the book on LeanPub because we we like that too. Um, but one of the one of the interesting types of independence that you get from self-publishing is is a strong negotiating position if if your book already has some traction and if you can build traction while you're writing your book, it actually gives you um, this is sort of deep in the lean publishing philosophy, but if you, one of the many things you, if you want to approach a publisher to pitch them, um, if you have books that you've written in the past, you can point to those, you can point to your online audience, things like that. But if you're working on a book and you already have an audience for it, uh, that, you know, can be a very attractive thing to a publisher to see that, that a book has traction even before it's finished. And uh, did you invite feedback explicitly from people or did they just start spontaneously offering it to you? Um, I was pretty um, open about it. So in, in the preface 
preface preface is the word I think of the book. Um, I invited people to um, I, I put in my my email address and invited them to give me feedback anytime they they see something, and I repeated that in the end. So the last sentence of the book is send me an email if if you find something. Um, so uh, and that went pretty well. I'm I'm still getting feedback about once a week or so um, fr from a reader about the book. Um, some um, um, all are worth uh, looking into. Um, some I include in, in the next version of the book. Um, some um, are ideas for perhaps blog posts around around that topic that don't really fit into the book. But um, yeah, it, it helps to actually invite invite feedback. Um, I don't think that I would have gotten that kind of feedback if I wouldn't have included um, my email address. Yeah, it's it's really interesting um, to have. I mean, I've been working on LeanPub since two. 2011. And it, it's interesting how conventions have changed over the years. Uh, it used to be that people were kind of quite nervous about giving out their email address just to the to everybody who gets their book. But now it's it's a completely normal thing. Uh, it's understood by the authors to be normal. It's understood by the readers to be normal. And one of the curious things about it with, you know, so much mayhem on social media, people seem to behave themselves pretty well uh, on email, <laughs> at least when it comes to non-political stuff. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Now that you say, it, yeah, the emails. There wasn't a single spammy email that that comes through that that came through that channel. So I'm pretty pretty glad that I did it. Um, yeah, um, email is still one of my favorite channels. To be honest, I'm very very lazy about social media, and and um, here at Atlassian we use Slack for work, which I find is totally. Um, distracting from from work actually uh, i still have to get used to that so email is actually my favorite means of communication it's, it's funny i think we could do a whole it sounds like we could talk about well we could have a whole another episode devoted to that subject because i think i'm totally with you on that um email has structure to it uh in a way that sort of you know things like slack don't we use we use slack at leanpub as well but the structure and the just the nature of the medium i think is 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 uh better for communicating in most circumstances. Um, so the last question I always like to ask on this podcast is if there was one thing we could build for you on LeanPub or one thing we could fix for you that really bugged you, what would you ask us to do? Um, I think what bothered me more at the start than, than it does now is um, that there is not a way to have a, an offline preview of, of your book. So um, I use the GitHub approach, so I um, I commit my my Markdown files to GitHub and um, then click on the create um, create a new version of the book button on LeanPub, and then it pulls it from from GitHub and creates the the preview PDF files and, and uh, Mobi files. Um, and at the start, when when I wasn't quite sure how it all worked, it was pretty um, annoying to always have to um, push it to GitHub and then click the button on LeanPub, and this has, has a very has a very long turnaround. But once once uh, I got it working and I concentrated on actually writing, it wasn't so much of a bother anymore. It's just I think it's a starting starting thing um, that could have been better if if I had a, a version offline to create to create a, um, a preview offline some way. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that, uh, and especially the, the you know it's very important to us to hear about people's first experience and 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 what it's like when they're using LeanPub. Um, so if we had, for example, like an app you could download that would then generate the book locally, is that is that something that you would be interested in? 
Yeah, definitely. That that's pretty much it. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I can't make any promises, but uh, we we listen we listen very carefully to our authors because they're all. I mean, one of the one of the really fortunate things about you know running a SaaS platform that people use to publish technical books is that we have technical customers who you know really know what they're doing and also know how to communicate and things like that. So that's that's really great. Um, well, thank you very much, Tom, for taking uh, time out of the day to uh, do this interview uh, and good good luck with uh, your adjustment to life in Australia. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.